0: Welcome to the Political Risk Podcast, an independent podcast focused on geopolitical risk to serve decision-makers in specialty insurance markets, reinsurance, and beyond. I'm your host, David Bennion, and I'm joined by Dr. John Holzman, a geopolitical risk forecaster, author, academic, and consultant. John is president and managing partner of his global political risk consulting firm, John C. Holzman Enterprises. He's a senior columnist for City AM. He writes regular columns for Conservative Home in London, as well as columns for The Hill in Washington and other titles around the globe. Prior to this, John served as a Fellow in European Policy Studies at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, and as a Senior Research Fellow in Geopolitics and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation for seven years, the largest think tank in the world a washington insider john is a life member for the us council on foreign relations he's the author of all or part of 14 books and a speaker on global political risk and foreign policy for blue chip corporations and governments around the world john has made a name for himself as an accurate predictor of global geopolitical risk in our new multipolar era uniquely calling the brexit referendum the 2020 us election across the presidency house and senate failures in nation-building in Iraq and Afghanistan, a slide towards a Sino-American Cold War, and the rise of endemic inflation, correctly calling 18 of his firm's past 20 major political risk predictions, a record he's rightly proud of. His most recent works include the best-selling To Dare More Boldly, The Audacious Story of Political Risk, and in February 2024 his new book, The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism, which forms the basis of this conversation. Politically, John is a Republican in the Jeffersonian tradition, and in foreign policy terms, he's a realist. His new book, The Last Best Hope, is a blueprint for a future realist American foreign policy, planning ahead for what he expects will be a return to the White House in late 2024 for the Republican Party, one of his big predictions for this year, which we'll get into. In his book, he provides historical context from Washington and Hamilton, via Lincoln, FDR, and JFK, through to Nixon and Reagan as historical case studies for a realist American foreign policy. Distilling that down, John describes three major innovations in the history of American realism. The first begins with Washington and Hamilton after the American Revolutionary War, resisting a temptation to ally with France, instead to pursue an uneasy peace with Britain as the global superpower of that era. The second innovation is the Monroe Doctrine of John Quincy Adams, to avoid wars of choice with what were then the European colonial powers in the Americas so that the United States would dominate the Western Hemisphere by the end of the 19th century. The Roosevelt Rule is the biggest idea of the three, for when the US should or shouldn't intervene around the globe. It's core to John's thinking about China, as well as crises in Ukraine and the Middle East, and we explore the Roosevelt Rule as a central tenet of the book in this episode. John, congratulations on your new book. The title, The Last Best Hope, is a quote from Abraham Lincoln from the era when America faced an existential crisis during the Civil War. Many people likely won't be familiar with that phrase. So please, could you explain?
1: I think with books, the thing is that you either begin or you end with the title. You either spend an awful lot of hours working, and then after years of thinking, you say, okay, this is what it was about. Or you go in with a very set notion of what you want to do. And this is the 15th book I've written all or part of, and it very much was I knew what I wanted to do going in, or I wouldn't have bothered doing it. And the reason is that it's such an age of insecurity that we live in. People are worried about the future of the country. And part of what the book was about is this isn't new. And that got me to thinking about Lincoln. And Lincoln has this wonderful quote when he does the State of the Union, then in written form, and in 1862, It was the height of the Southern success. They'd won battle after battle. They'd won at Second Manassas and Seven Days and Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg. Everything Lee touched turned to gold. Everything the Union side touched turned to pewter. And I'm saying that politely because we're on a family-friendly podcast. And the reality was Lincoln, after doing this laundry list of what's going on, begins to talk about slavery. And he's gonna go ahead with the Emancipation Proclamation knowing he's doubling down on betting on the Republic. And he says at the end, he finally the language is soaring, and he says to Congress at the end that the United States is the last best hope of Earth. For all the problems, for all the doom and gloom, one has to keep your eye on the prize. And it seems to me that that notion of a last best hope, how to restore the American Republic, which is what Lincoln spent all his time thinking about, is precisely where we are and what I wanted to do. And so I end the introduction where we're talking about Lincoln with kind of our soundbite for what we're trying to do, which is if you can change the Republican Party by making it realist again, you can change the Republican Party, you can change America, and if you can change America, you can change the world. And that's absolutely the wildly ambitious goal of the book. Otherwise, I wouldn't write one. Whether I write 14 or 15 books is immaterial. Only my mother would care about something like that. What matters is that I write a book that actually moves the needle politically, and that's what this is trying to do.
0: John, you're known for making bold political risk predictions. This book is grounded in history, but it's laser-focused on the future. The whole premise of the book relies on some of your big calls for 2024 coming true. Please explain this a little bit more.
1: You have to look at the present to talk about the future, and then we can get into the past. They are connected, and that that's what my firm is actually good at. I mean, our call record, and you know that I think we rely too much on political science and not enough on history. I'm a history man, and we hire at my firm primarily history people, and many years after the fact, I've decided this this was very intelligent of me. At the time, I didn't know that I was self-selecting, but I was. And the reality is that the difference is history is the lived experience of human beings. It's not theoretical. It's how we've actually lived for the last three or 4,000 years. And one of the things that the firm has in mind is the notion that history, if not repeating itself, does indeed rhyme. And I think that's right. There are patterns there that you can see if you bother and are brave enough to look at them. And so one of the reasons that we care about our call record is that you can actually, it's not the marketing, it's not being trendy, it's not talking about AI this minute because people are interested, or global warming was the old one that now no one seems to care about. It's avoiding fashion and talking about the things that really matter. And what I do, that's geostrategy and history. And so we have this call record for 20 years where we make four or five calls a year. Usually I do it in City AM and and in London, uh, where, where many of our clients are. And Talk about putting your neck in the gallows. I mean, our, our call record is the best in the business. It's 80%. It's way above the monkey score of 50, though some of my my competitors are actually below the monkey score. I don't know how that's mathematically possible, but they are. As you know, I, I pick on the FT, the always wrong FT. If you're wrong about Iraq and you're wrong about Afghanistan and you're wrong about the financial crisis and you're wrong about Trump and you're wrong about the rise of China and you're wrong about covid Maybe you should rethink the world, and maybe no one should hire you. I mean, we have this view, and so we're held to these calls. And when we get that 80%, it's method acting. You can learn from being right, and you've got to be honest when you're right. False modesty doesn't work in the business, but you also have to be open for when you're wrong and excruciatingly go through what you got wrong. But this year, as you say, none of what I'm saying in the book makes sense without the calls. So the way we look at it are, one- The cheerleading about Ukraine has to end. They're losing the war. If it's a stalemate, they're losing. Why are they losing? The Russians have five times the number of people, have their own military industrial complex, are getting more weapons more easily from North Korea than they are from the Europeans who have predictably overpromised. Gosh, there's a shock. And the United States who mired in political disagreement, again, not a big shock. So we're assuming that that will continue, that the war is ground into a stalemate or the Ukrainians will outright be losing, but they certainly won't be winning. They will not be regaining territory, and that is very specific. Right now, Russia controls about 22% of Ukraine. That number will stay the same or get worse. That's an assumption and a prediction. Two, Donald Trump's gonna win the presidency. Again, not what anyone in London wants to hear. I I buy the Times to know what the always-run British establishment is thinking about. And something like 84 percent think he should be disqualified from Colorado being charged with an insurrection that that he's never been even charged with. But they just want him off the ballot. They don't like him. That's not a reason to do away with constitutional niceties. The Americans I care about are named Franklin, Adams, Washington and Madison. I don't care about any of these guys. I care about a republic that's worked for 250 years But Donald Trump, partly because people have Trump derangement syndrome, this democratic idea that we have to bomb the village in order to save it, that we have to destroy democratic norms in order to protect them, which is most Americans who are independents think is nuts if you look at independent voting patterns, is likely to win the presidency again. So that's the second prediction that we make that has to make the book work.
0: Before we go any further, I wanted to ask you A bit of a side question, but again, it's important to the book. So your notion that there's a realist foreign policy can be the glue that unites different factions of the Republican Party. So you've got your grassroots Jacksonians and your more elitist, sometimes isolationist Jeffersonians. You put it very nicely as Jeffersonians like Johnny Cash, Jacksonians are Johnny Cash.
1: The key is that that to make this work, there were basically three factions, one's left and two remain. And my book hopes to be the realist glue that binds them together. The people who are left, our audience in Britain will be familiar with the neoconservatives who are around George W. Bush. And let's name names. These are the cheerleaders you'd hear David from, Ann Applebaum, Robert Kagan, Bill Kristol. These are folks who think the world is unipolar, that America can pretty much do what it wants, that we can impose democracy from the barrel of a gun. This was tried to some extent in Afghanistan and certainly tried in Iraq. So the reality here was that after this catastrophe that cost a trillion dollars, left around the dominant power in the Gulf, led to the rise of ISIS indirectly and led to Iraq becoming a sinkhole in the region. The neoconservatives are discredited in the Republican Party. The one laugh line, Dave, I can always get in America is when you talk to normal Americans, you just say, do you want your trillion dollars back? And everyone laughs and says yes. Nobody thinks this went well. And so the neoconservatives are partly being outed because of their own failures. I mean, that's part of what's going on here. But the other reason is that Donald Trump and one of the better things that he did had threw them out of the party. They were part of the party establishment under George W. Bush, and he led an unfriendly takeover of the party. Let's use Trump's business terminology in 2016. And so the party is now left with them leaving. And one of the things that happened is Robert Kagan, for instance, has joined the Democratic Party, which makes perfect sense because uh, neoconservatives want to use the state to change the culture of someone that they don't know much about. Uh, This is a statist, government-centric, heavy tax, heavy spending, government involvement thing. It's a democratic idea. And so they've gone back to where they really came from. They've been Trotskyites originally under Irving Kristol, then Democrats who were mugged by reality, as they said, and then became Republicans. Well, now they've gone back to their natural home because Trump has thrown them out. One of the best things he's done, you know, unintentionally, I don't care. Historically, he'll be, this will be seen as a good thing. And it's left these two very strange groups. And I love that you use the Johnny Cash way because that's the way I divided in the office. I'm a Jeffersonian. I'm an elitist populist, and yes, that's as contradictory as it sounds. I run an international global business, and I live in Europe. So I'm not the normal member of the base of the Republican Party. I adore Johnny Cash. I think he's wonderful. Bob Dylan, folk music. I think it's great. But I come from a tradition where I'm viewing this from afar. The people we're talking about, the Jacksonians who are the populist base of the party, are the high school educated white men who've been left behind by globalization, whose children volunteer for these wars. They don't opt out of it like the Congress, where none of their children fight in these wars. They're the people who are doing the bleeding, the fighting, the dying, the living through. These wars are real for people. Primarily, they come from the South and the West of the United States, and they form now the core of Trump's support. And one of the assumptions in the book is that when Trump passes from the scene, these people are still going to be the core of the Republican Party. They're not going to go away And so engaging them and making them part of the conversation is vital. When I worked in Washington, and you know I did for 10 years, we did a survey once in a major meeting and we went around the room how many people are Jacksonian? I think one guy in 300 raised his hands. They then asked how many are Jeffersonian? I think seven of us raised our hands. You know, it's still pretty rarefied territory there. Once you leave a certain wing of the Heritage Foundation, Cato, the Stand Together Alliance, and the Koch Foundation, there's not much else there. It's an important group that's expanding its market share, but but we are far from a majority. But together with the Jacksonians and the Jeffersonians, the people who like Johnny Cash and the people who are Johnny Cash, in this new era, you've got yourself a majority. So we have to find ways to bind us together. And the logical way happens to be the thing that I passionately care about, as you know, which is realism. They're both different sorts of realists. Yes, Jacksonians are for limited government and they like the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. Jeffersonians care more about the First Amendment, but they're for limited government, for a foreign policy based on American interests, much more specifically than the Democrats who believe in kind of a Wilsonian internationalism or the neocons who think the United States, Mari Nostrum, RC, the Mediterranean is ours, we can do as we like. They have a very limited view of American government. They still think America is the greatest country in the world. But their way of saving it is picking and choosing when to get involved, how much to get involved, and that the answer is not always yes, nor is it always no. But that is the glue that can bind these two groups together. And if this does work, then the Republican Party, in a sense, goes back to what it used to be under people like Dwight David Eisenhower, Richard Nixon, Teddy Roosevelt. And we regain the thing that may—and really ran American foreign policy, as you see in the book, for about 100 years— we go back to the things that brought us to the dance. And so in a way, the Beatles were getting back.
0: You made the point, I think, in previous podcasts that, you know, the geo in geopolitics is so important. It's sometimes underplayed. But having read the book, you also say, of course, it was right to send some aids in the early stages. No one wanted to see Ukraine annihilated by Putin's invasion. But now we're in this stalemate situation. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, if Ukraine was to lose, then the Baltics are next, NATO states come next. But we don't see much capacity in the Russian military to be able to achieve those grand I mean, Even if Putin has the ideological aim of going back to 1800s borders of Russia, it doesn't seem like he has the capability. So I just kind of want to see a realistic view of where you think the Ukraine conflict might freeze or end up.
1: This is it. People keep forgetting this. I don't care what he wants to do. I care about his capability. Intention and capability to determine action among leaders. It's always both. Putin can't even take over Western Ukraine. Nobody thinks he can, let alone get to the Baltics, let alone march down the under Den Linden, let alone get to where I live in Milan. It's laughable. And when I hear this, people making this argument are laughable. Make me an argument that makes some realistic sense in the real world that I live in. It's magical thinking. And the reason they're making that argument. These people like Phillips O'Brien, cheerleaders for Ukraine, have been proven wrong over and over again. These are people who said they'd win last year. They went on record, again, judge people by their analysis. They weren't going by their analysis. It's called wish casting. It's substituting what you want from what is. Realists don't do that. Realists think, as Burke did, the key to being ethical is seeing the world as it is, warts and all, and then trying to make it better, not wishing for some world that doesn't exist and then being shocked. It doesn't work that way. This hasn't worked that way. They're trying to make up for being wrong. I saw this in Iraq, it's exactly the same. And when someone's wrong, they become dangerous. And it didn't work that way. The, the Ukrainian offensive fizzled predictably as we wrote last year in the City AM column, given Russian mines and given Bakhmut and Verdun-style World War I warfare where Russia throws wave after wave of guys at it. Well, they can do that. They have five times the people and they have an innate military industrial complex. This was predictable and we predicted it 14 months ago and that's exactly what's happened so now people who are now being laughed at eye-rolled at are desperate and the answer is always what they're going to say it's what the people say it's still about afghanistan insanely if only we'd done more if only we'd stayed forever yeah this is crazy
0: and this is one of the big calls to the year that it is a stalemate.
1: yeah and if it is you go to the Ukrainians, and yes, I was for aid for them not being obliterated. I'm still for that. I didn't want them to be annihilated. And it, those were stirring days, and they, and they totally repaid that aid in kind by heroically saving themselves with our health. And that's wonderful. And I'm not against that, and I'm not cheerleading against them. I don't think Putin's a great idea. The fact that I have to say that is how silly this argument has become. The reality, though, is it will only get worse from them from here on out. It's like Rabin negotiating with the Palestinians. Why did he? He didn't love Yasser Arafat. He was at the apex of Israeli power. You negotiate at the apex of your power, not when you're going down. The most likely outcome is an armistice line like South Korea, where de jure, Ukraine doesn't give up their borders. I don't expect them to just say, you can cede this. Of course not. De facto, there's an armistice line like in South Korea. The EU eventually takes in Ukraine the United States and the West, give Ukraine porcupine strategy. No, I don't trust Putin. Again, silly argument. We help Ukraine with capability over time, particularly defensive capability, which is in the war working very well. Defensive capability. And Ukraine then is a viable state that's part of Europe. And we still get most of what we want. But if they wait another year, if Zelensky engages in magical thinking, and it seems that he is, he seems to be the only one left believing he's going to retake Crimea, which is insane and unlikely to happen to put it mildly because we're not going to fight a nuclear war with russia over crimea we're not so all this to me is simply trying to help them in spite of themselves
0: let's talk nato for a moment so you are obviously skeptical about entering into alliances eternal alliances you say rather than more transactional temporary where you can actually state the national interest and how that may change over time right but i'm curious in a trump presidency the us is going to want to see more bang for its buck right so how does that conversation start and what's achievable
1: i think nato has to prove i mean the idea that it's self evident that the united states let europe's strategic ride off it is gone i mean for 20 years i've lived in europe and said to people basically eventually there'll be a populist to the left or the right or both Bobby Kennedy is echoing Trump in many ways here and correctly saying nobody's meeting the 2% threshold, which is a joke anyway. The United States is 75% of the wherewithal of NATO. That is unhealthy.
0: Britain and Poland?
1: Yeah, Britain and Poland do the 2% and they're... of
0: the major powers anyway.
1: Yeah. France is at one8 They could get there if they had to. The Spanish, the Italians are shameful and the Germans are worse. I mean, we have to call out what it is, is. Do the Germans want to retire at the age of 14 on the back of the American taxpayer? That's not a winner for either party anymore. They have to show that they care more about European security than I do. And I care about it. And I care about NATO. But it's time for tough love. The Europeans have to prove to the United States why it's in our interests to remain. And that's what people in the Republican Party will be saying. I'm a NATO man. I'll be making the argument. Please give me an argument to make. But the way that this has got to work is and and gates and obama started this discussion secretary gates and obama the united states needs to pivot to the indo-pacific it's where all the risk and all the reward are it's much more important to us than to europe that's fine china is the pure competitor superpower we need to worry about we'll talk about the roosevelt rule but it is and that doesn't mean we, we stop doing things with Europe. It means Europe picks up the slack, dealing more and more than the United States, with the United States in a supportive but secondary role in the Balkans, in North Africa, and even with the Russians over time. Now, this is a transition. It's not a faucet. It's not a light switch. It takes time. But rather than talk about, if I hear one more European use that inane phrase of Anglo-America, we'll do our homework. That's a way of saying someday in the future, we might get serious about that. Time is gone for Europeans. They've wasted generations doing nothing. They don't do speed. And now we need them to speedily realize they have to care about NATO. They have to do more. And they have to prove to us that NATO still matters in North Africa, the Balkans, and with Russia. If they were to do that, I, I think the United States would strongly support them. There would be a renewed emphasis on NATO and the Republican Party. It would strengthen people like me who believe in the alliance, who've lived this their whole life. And it's utterly salvageable. But nothing is written. I wrote a book you know, about Lawrence of Arabia, and he famously said, nothing is written. Everything is dependent on what happens. And so the Europeans are masters of their own fate. But the idea that it's inevitable, the United States writes some blank checks for another generation, that will not happen.
0: Before we kind of get away from it, because I said I wanted to have a whole section where we talk about the Roosevelt rule. So it's obviously a huge concept in the book and the big one in terms of the three big ideas of of, of realism, right? So so this is the, the yardstick for determining whether foreign policy intervention is worth it, including not fighting when it isn't necessary. Putin might not be Hitler. Milosevic might not be Hitler. Hitler was Hitler. So some conflicts <laughs> do meet the Roosevelt yardstick.
1: No, you're right. Like, Dave, that's the key to the book, because the argument always back to realists, the good argument back to us when they're a lot when tennis, intellectual tennis is being played. You know, the Nadal groundstroke to Federer's backhand is simple. It's okay. You guys are great about telling us when not to intervene. When would you intervene? And too often Jeffersonians, particularly I think the Jacksonians are actually been better on this. The populist base would say when our honors engaged or when obviously fundamental interests are jeffersonians i think have been all over the place and and part of what the book is doing is saying we have to ground this one in our history and in what franklin roosevelt unlikely hero of the book you know and i think he is the hero of the book in many ways that roosevelt worked this out and anybody who's played risk knows this if you if you look at the board there's a world island the world island is europe and asia put together it's where all the people are all the resources all the ports this is the key to winning the game if you control europe and asia you're going to win risk you're going to dominate the world This is true in the real world. The geo again matters. The geography we forget so often in geopolitics. And so when to intervene becomes rather simple. What Roosevelt did was take what the British had done from the Glorious Revolution onward and adopted it to the whole of Eurasia. In the old days, the British said, look, our empire makes us dominant in the world. So all we need to do to win is side with the second biggest European power always and keep the largest European power from dominating Europe. If they dominate Europe, we're done. If they don't, we dominate the world, hence the Armada, hence the Sun King, hence Napoleon, hence the Kaiser, hence Hitler. It was a great rule of thumb, which worked brilliantly for a very long time. Roosevelt, who was a student of the Anglo-American aristocracy, was certainly a member of that, card-carrying member of that, like Churchill, knew this, and he adopted this to the broader rule of Imperial Japan and Hitler. And he says, anybody who dominates either portion of this world island is going to take care of America. America dominates the Western Hemisphere, but it's this side peripheral landmass off the core world island. And we have to see that nobody dominates either part of the world island. So the definition for when to intervene becomes very simple. If you think that someone can dominate either Europe or Asia at any point, you have to at least put up deterrence and militarily balance against them. You might not have to fight, but you militarily have to be prepared to, and you have to have deterrence and be prepared to balance against them. In our modern world, this would mean you don't have to worry about Ukraine. Again, Russia can't even take over Western Ukraine, let alone the Balkans, let alone Germany, Italy, France, Spain, etc. That's not remotely possible. So it is a secondary concern. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter doesn't mean you don't give them aid, doesn't mean you don't try to help them, but it means you don't need to worry about intervening. On the other hand, China, if it were to control Taiwan, as you know, I think the first island chain dominates the Indo-Pacific, dominates Asia, and then dominates the world. And so Taiwan becomes the Berlin of this new Cold War. And that is an area where we would have to intervene. And so this fits into what I'm saying about NATO. If you tell the Europeans that, look, here's our model for intervention. We need your help with North Africa, the Balkans, and even Putin. We'll go deal with this other problem primarily, with your help, but primarily, we'll go deal with the Indo-Pacific. Get our back on this important, but secondary kind of nature of stuff, and you will find us entirely card committed to NATO. And so this really plays into the modern world, this historical view. And so Roosevelt realizes in about 1939, 1940, that his isolationist country is gonna have to wake up very, very quickly and fight perhaps both the Nazis and the Japanese, because both of them violate the Roosevelt rule. But this rule is still how things ought to be run. And I finally answer that question that people put to realists, correctly put to realists, saying, yeah, okay, we screwed up Iraq. What would you do? Now I can answer.
0: I want to talk a bit more about Asia Pacific, that pivot. But before we quite get to that, one of your calls for 2024 is that Israel will lose the peace having won the war against um, Hamas in Gaza. But just in recent weeks, we've got the situation in the Red Sea. So that's an interesting one, I think. Firstly, it's a maritime issue. It's one example of the international rules-based regime. It's maritime trade. I just thought this might be an interesting one to pose to. you.
1: This is an example in the Red Sea with the Houthis that I think does make sense. And I don't believe in the international commons. What's real is the American Navy. That's real. And It's in America's interests, undoubtedly, that global trade be free-flowing and that the Red Sea be open so we don't have to go around Africa, thereby nobbling our economy by this happening over time. And so blowing them out of the water makes perfect sense from a national interest perspective to me. And Wilsonians would say, you're upholding the international commons. You're furthering. I don't really care if I think they're wrong about why we agree And I know why they think what they think. We agree about this specific issue, and I'll work with them and support them when they assemble a coalition and blow the Houthi sailboats out of the water. Where I wouldn't agree with them, though, and this is, again, where it's not all or nothing, and we've got to get beyond, if you don't intervene, it doesn't mean you're an isolationist. Every single time, everywhere, all at once. That's a crazy definition of being an internationalist. I'm an internationalist, but as a realist, I say it depends. So I agree entirely. Blow them out of the water. I don't agree then. Then let's go into Yemen and take over the areas they're in. You can hear this coming. And then let's make the Yemenis good tax-paying Jeffersonians. And then let's worry about women's rights in Yemen. And then let's worry about having a democracy in Yemen. And then let's spend 20 years and a trillion dollars in Yemen. This has been the pattern.
0: You made a big call for 2024 regarding China and Taiwan. And, you know, the moment you've got to carrier a group or it has been anyway in the Red Sea or the Eastern Med. There are only so many of those, and you don't want to have distractions like that in a few years' time, right? You want those carriers to be free to do stuff in in Asia Pac. So let's talk about the pivot to Asia Pac, twenty twenty four, and then twenty twenty seven, potentially and beyond.
1: We assume, and and again, one of my favorite books, and I, I reference it in, in my book, is the Angry Young Man, left wing book of David Halberstam, the best and the brightest about Vietnam. Oh. And one of the points he reaches is that things that made perfect sense with the Kennedy people having drinks or the Council on Foreign Relations, where the Americans could work out some sort of deal, made no sense at all in the jungles of Vietnam. None. And we get this wrong all the time. We don't look at things from the point of view of the locals who are going to live there long after we're gone. The joke about in Afghanistan was the Taliban may not have watches, but they can tell the time. They know we're going to leave. We're not going to stay a hundred years. We're not going to intermarry with their elite. Or like the Romans crucified people every mile on the Appian Way. We're not going to be both more brutal and then more inclusive, which is the way to colonize someone. We're not going to do that either way. And so they can wait us out. And they know that. And we know that. And we're bluffing. Anybody who thinks we're staying forever other than Ann Applebaum is wrong. We're not. And that's cheerleading and it's magical thinking without the good novel. And so... This is a reality of what's going on. You have to look at things from the point of view of the people. Everybody keeps saying, oh, the United States is distracted. They're worried about Ukraine. They're worried about Gaza. That's not how the Chinese look at this. The Chinese look at this from their own timetable with their own imperatives. Do our imperatives matter? Sure, tangentially. But are they the primary thing they're worried about? We assume everyone worries about us constantly. And it annoys the rest of the world that the United States does that. And the rest of the world is right. It depends on where you are. Geography, again, matters a lot. The Chinese right now have a new commander in charge of their armed forces. They've had massive corruption in them. There's obviously been a purge of senior military leadership. None of that is screaming, let's invade this year. They have new guys in charge. He's trying to get his army together to get his ducks in a row so that they have that possibility to invade. We know the CIA has rightly said in the Chinese, William Burns, the Chinese haven't corrected him That in 2027, Xi wants the capability to be able to take Taiwan militarily if he so chooses that the planning is done, at least. So he's getting his ducks in a row, but he's not going to change his timetable because we are interested in Gaza or we have an election or Ukraine. These are peripheral concerns. What he's worried about is can his military take this very difficult island in terrible tidal weather? The tides in Taiwan are like Incheon, not like Normandy. It's very, very difficult to do. There are only 14 or so beaches that you can actually take. It's rocky and has internal wherewithal, and the United States can now quickly reinforce from the northern Philippines soon, from Okinawa and from Guam, and and the Japanese are doubling defense spending. That's what he's thinking about. That's what worries him. That's local intelligence that matters to him. And we're all obsessed about making these neocon links that that aren't there.
0: Yeah, and you make the point eloquently that the U.S. needs its regional allies in the Pacific, that China will be deterred and contained and kept within the first island chain, not just by the U.S. alone, but through the Anglosphere, AUKUS, the Quad, the rising power of India, Japan, South Korea, all of those and the Philippines, all of those regional alliances in the US has come to rely on.
1: That's what I want to spend my time worrying about. And that's what my firm spends 70% of its time doing. The Indo-Pacific and why we go where the action is. We have a lot of bilateral ties in the region. And I'm pretty relaxed about that. I love that AUKUS is congealed, that we have an Anglosphere alliance of the UK, the US, Australia, Butch and Sundance. We bicker, we shut, but we shoot the Bolivian army together. Always. And, you know, it's extraordinary. Five Anglosphere countries, 15 possible outcomes, 15 times they side together. People underestimate how important this is. Canada, Australia, UK, New Zealand, and the US. That's what makes it work. 15 out of 15 times they side together. Plus the five eyes, the premier intelligence gathering source in the world, are the five cousins. And so the idea that this isn't fundamental to how the world works to me is European wishful thinking. It is. And in Asia, it matters a lot, a great deal. That we have this going. The other thing is the quad, which is exactly who you'd want in an anti-Chinese grouping. Rising superpower India, as you know, I'm bullish on India beyond belief. When I run out of nice things to say, I talk about India. You know, it's obviously going to be a superpower economically, geostrategically. It's a great investment opportunity. It's democratic, English speaking, Anglosphere country with an Asian twist. This is great. This is as good as it's gonna get.
0: I think there's a neat parallel in a triangularity of superpower relations between the Cold War example of Nixon and Kissinger reengaging with China and its effects on the Soviet Union back then, but also looking to the 21st century situation of the US and China and India's rise to superpower status, which is one of your big calls for 2024, perhaps also the, the role a, a more muscular Japanese policy might play in regards to China.
1: It is. And Nixon, you know, Kissinger has just passed the scene finally. And- you know, Henry got this. I mean, Nixon made it happen, as the chapter makes clear Nixon. It's Nixon's vision. It's the opposite of what everybody thought. Henry got all the intellectual glory for being the intellectual godfather of this and that Nixon came in and kind of did the tactics well. Actually, it was the opposite. And the more research I did, Nixon's the one with the vision. And Henry then very ably made the tactics work with Joe and Enlai. But really, it's Nixon's vision. It, it, again, very strange man. Not an easy man to love, like John Quincy Adams in that way. But a man to admire because he sees that you can change the board by bringing China on. That Vietnam doesn't matter if you win China and lose Vietnam. That's a great trade, and you're going to do well in the Cold War. So you have to work with monsters or people you don't like. As I mentioned in the book, that I don't want dating my daughter. You know, is the line that I don't. Mao is a the Ted Bundy of international relations. No doubt he is. But if you care about your country and the people in it and the world they're going to give to their children, the play to China is eminently ethical and moral because you force the Soviets onto the back foot. They then do detente because they're so scared of the United States sidling up to China. And you're closer to both China and the Soviets than they are to each other. That's what we need to think about in a tripolar world. Can we be closer to India than China? If that's the world we live in in a century, it's a very good world. It's an English-speaking, capitalistic, democratic, individual liberty-dominated world. Will we, like all great powers, bicker and have down moments? Of course we are. We're talking about the big sweep of geostrategy here. But a world dominated by those three, with India and the United States doing more and more together – is a world that I can happily leave to my grandchildren, where the things that we really believe in are there because that triangulation works for India and the United States. And so the single most important bilateral time moving forward is India and the United States. That's the one that matters. You, and again, you, you're right, Dave, to mention Japan. The third largest economy in the world is gonna double its defense spending in five years. I mean, this is unheard of in terms of how important this is. They're giving us the basing in Okinawa. They're doubling their defense spending. The Philippines are giving us basing in the Northern Islands under Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Bong Bong Again, a grown man is called Bong Bong, but there we are. But he's certainly staunchly pro-American. Actually, the Indo-Pacific lines up very, very well for the United States, and the Chinese have a very limited window to take Taiwan. I argue this all the time, as you know, from roughly 2027, as Xi says, give it five years to 2030 or 2032, something like that is the window. After that, it gets harder and harder as the Japanese get better with this new wherewithal, as India through the Quad works with Japan, Australia, Anglosphere country, and the United States as a nascent kind of anti-Chinese alliance. It gets harder and harder to break away. And so the goal is to hold the fort now, to really drill down on these friendships and bilateral ties and these nascent groupings and force the Chinese to hesitate. If they hesitate, this is where all the growth in the world is, and we live in a very prosperous world, and we avoid World War III with China. The stakes are off the chart in the Indo-Pacific, which is why I worry incessantly about that and not so much about Gaza and Ukraine.
0: John, you're someone who understands the, the value of history when trying to understand today's geopolitics. I think history went somewhat out of fashion in the most recent era of globalization. Do you think we're seeing a demand for the return of history? in political risk decision-making. It's
1: coming back. It was seen when we started, people were saying, you're gonna run a risk firm that's primarily devoted to history. That's the least important subject I can think of. And I remember thinking, I have an advantage here. I was very quiet about this. I didn't say much because this is the learned experience of us, this is our story. And human beings, just when you're about to throw your hands up and say, we're all evil, we'll do something remarkably selfless and brave and wonderful. And just when you're about to think that we're all wonderful, we'll do something remarkably Machiavellian and duplicitous and Francis Urquhart for no reason. And if you don't understand both sides of us, if you don't understand through history what we're capable of, good and bad, if you see only one side, but you're inherently naive, you're you're going to be wrong. And what history forces me to do is take my theoretical work and ground it in the realities of what's going on. And that's where this book was great. While I'm thinking about the risk calls And while I'm worrying about the day job, grounding when to intervene and how Roosevelt looked at the world in that key moment between 1939 and 1941, before the United States goes in, when he realizes he has to use the superhuman effort to move the country to a war footing, to me was, again, heroic, Hemingway-like, heroic understanding. He may well have failed, but he's going to try anyway. And it just struck me that that really moved me that this is the answer that history provided me with the answer to these big questions now about how to unite the Jeffersonians and Jacksonians, which is the game. Because if we can unite the Republicans in a realist fashion, it will ultimately help change both America and the world. And that's the only reason to get up in the morning. You know, I mean, that's the reason for me to do my gig.
0: Well, this has been a deep dive into a realist American foreign policy perspective. Not just historically, but for the world we face today and tomorrow. If John's right about a Republican return to the White House by the end of 2024. The last best hope is out now, and I'd recommend it as an insight for those who want to stay a step ahead, as well as appreciate the historical context to political risk. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, I'd also recommend subscribing to John's podcast on Substack. I've been your host, David Bennion, and my guest was John Holtzman. Production was by Peter McGill, and Lawrence Durkin provided the music.